kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 13, verses 38 through 43. Acts 13, beginning in verse 38. Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. In our last study, Paul and Barnabas came into the synagogue of Pisidian Antioch, and after the reading of the Law and the Prophets, They were invited by the local rulers to speak a word of encouragement to the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles who were there. Up to this point, Paul's sermon has consisted of two main emphases. First, that Israel had been, throughout their history, the beneficiaries of God's goodness and grace, and that this goodness and grace had come to supreme culmination in God sending them the Christ, who is Jesus. Of course, Jesus had been killed— But Paul claimed that he had been raised from the dead by God. Thus, the second point was to justify his first point against the anticipated objections. First, by explaining that the Jews in Jerusalem had rejected Christ because they were ignorant of the true meaning of the Scriptures. And second, by explaining how the Scriptures supported the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, even in regard to the most surprising and unmessianic of his experiences. From these points, Paul proceeds with his sermon in verse 38. Therefore, what Paul is about to say grows out of both the earlier sections of his sermon. He expects the following proposition to be accepted on the basis that he has effectively proven that Jesus is the Messiah, but also on the first premise, that Israel's entire historical relationship with God was one of receiving gifts of grace from him. Let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all the things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. In earlier studies, we've noted that some critical scholars think that the Paul of Acts was a literary invention of Luke, and charge that he was very different from the Paul of the Epistles. Of course, we reject that, but this passage especially is a strike against it. These words could be offered as a good summary of the central proposition of almost all of Paul's letters, that is, the Christian doctrine of justification by faith. Let it be known to you, brethren, is an emphatic statement to drive this point as the main thrust of all he has said, or to use the words of McGarvey, the benefit of his meditation. 
Now, I want to spend a good portion of our time dissecting the following words and formulating a clear statement of their teaching. I want to begin by offering this statement of the doctrine of justification by faith as I see it in the teaching of Paul here and elsewhere, and then to establish and embellish each point with the scriptures. Justification, or being right in the sight of God, is given or accounted to us by God's grace through the work of Jesus Christ. Justification is only in Christ, that is, He is the sole ground of our good standing with God. We are sinners. We have transgressed God's law. And as sinners, we are not justified by ignorance because we are not truly ignorant. We are not justified by moral superiority or ethnic privilege or wealth or earthly accomplishment because that is not how judgment works. We are not justified by works of law because the law demands absolute perfection and none of us offers that at any stage in our lives. We are justified only by the pardon of sins through the sacrifice of Christ, which alone takes sin away. This justification is given to those who believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is not merely mental assent. It has attached to it certain outward expressions, namely confession of faith and baptism in water. And it includes a turning of the heart toward the lordship of Christ, what the Bible calls repentance. It is perhaps better to say that we are justified by faithfulness. Faithfulness is not flawlessness, for if it were, we would need no pardon for sins. It is rather a setting of the heart on Jesus that results in a relentless pursuit of his will, both the understanding of it and the practice of it. If we reject faithfulness to God and turn our hearts against his authority, we will not be right in the sight of God. But if we are loyal to him, we will be right in God's sight, even in spite of our ignorance and weakness. The purpose of justification by faith is to liberate us from sin and thus to enable and inspire real transformation into an ever-increasing state of practical righteousness that will culminate in our complete transformation into the image of Jesus in the resurrection from the dead. So here in Acts 13, Paul states that through this man, here is an equivalent phrase to the one that Paul will so often use in his writings, in Christ. Christ and his work in dying for our sins, being raised from the dead and interceding for us in heaven, is the sole basis of our justification before God. I want to elaborate a little on some of the points I made a moment ago. Sinners cannot plead justification on the grounds of ignorance. The Bible says that God has revealed himself sufficiently in the evidence of his power and wisdom in nature and in the conscience of man through the power of moral reasoning so that all are without excuse, Romans 1.20. These days it is fashionable to be an agnostic and to suppose that there is some security in that. In reality, the only ones who are safe in agnosticism are those who are truly, to use the Latin version of the same word, ignoramuses. 
If you utterly lack the ability to discern order in the world or to make moral judgments, as is the case with infants and people with certain developmental disorders, then you would be justified on the basis of ignorance. But most agnostics I know do not want to be considered unworthy of a moral opinion or an abstract thought. They have a great many, and that proves that they are not as ignorant as they claim. Neither can sinners plead justification on the basis of moral superiority, what we might call salvation by works of merit, or ethnic privilege, or social privilege, because the Bible says that's not how judgment works. A rich man cannot expect to bribe God because God has no need of anything that we might offer him, Psalm 50 and verse 12, and he is not a corrupt judge anyway. He wouldn't take the bribe even if he did need it. He testifies that because of his nature, he never justifies the wicked or condemns the righteous, Exodus 23 and verse 7. In the judgment of God, our good deeds are not weighed against our bad. Rather, all of our deeds, good and bad, are judged against the law of God, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Romans 2.5-10. And no one is excluded from this judgment because God does not show partiality toward anyone, Romans 2 and verse 11. This leaves us with the sober truth that the only hope we have of justifying ourselves before God is by perfection, and not perfection in an arbitrarily contrived list of doctrines and practices that we have chosen to label essentials or salvation issues, but perfection in everything which God has revealed. And this means, of course, that it is impossible to justify ourselves because we are sinners. There are things about God's law of which we are ignorant, and there are things we know, but in our weakness we do not obey flawlessly. And there are times when we have been plainly defiant against God's authority. Thus, the only hope that any of us has is Christ. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So Paul says, through this man in Christ is preached to you. This is a vital statement that we must keep in mind because it shows the justification brought through Christ is contingent on the preaching of the gospel. In a moment, Paul is going to talk about believing in Christ, and we will find that there is an essential relationship between hearing preaching and believing. Through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Now, it may not be a vital point for everyone, but it was for me. The forgiveness of sins is not the same as justification. Rather, it is the means of our justification. Justification means being right with God. If we are sinners, we are not justified. We are not right with God. How can we become justified? How can we become right with God? Only by the pardon or forgiveness of our sins. Only then can our lives be measured against the standard of God's law and be found pleasing to Him. And by Him, this is another statement that is equivalent in meaning to in Him or in Christ, and repeats that Christ's work is the sole ground of our justification— Everyone who believes is justified. This is the condition of justification. And what does it mean to believe? 
We've already established this in Acts many times over. We have seen that believing in Jesus does certainly include a trust in him as the Messiah and in his death as the means of salvation from sin. So every time the gospel is preached, the preacher announces that Jesus is the Christ and God has shown this plainly. And though he was killed, God raised him up and highly exalted him that through him forgiveness of sins might be given. That is the point that the ancient Christian preachers were trying to get people to believe. Believing also includes an active response of immersion in water in order to the forgiveness of sins. The New Testament knows of no such thing as an unbaptized person who has sinned but is now forgiven and faithful to Christ. Ultimately, however, believing in Jesus means something much more than either of these things. Ultimately, it means giving fealty to him as your sovereign king. We've noticed before how those who are disciples of Christ have been labeled those who call on his name. And we have seen that calling on the name of the Lord refers to this concept of submitting to his lordship over your life. Moments ago, we noted a connection between preaching and the justification that comes in Christ. In Romans 10.14, the Apostle Paul ties together these ideas of hearing the gospel preached, believing in Jesus, and calling on his name. He says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And in Acts 22.16, we learn that when Paul himself was converted, he was charged by the preacher to be baptized calling on the name of the Lord. When Paul says that the believer is justified, he does not mean that the belief is the cause of his justification. Belief is the condition of his pardon or forgiveness of sins. The cause or power that brings the forgiveness of sins is the work of Christ. And through the forgiveness of his sins, a man is justified or restored to a right relationship with God. We should also note that there is both a message of universality and of exclusivity in Paul's preaching. Salvation is available to everyone who believes. And Paul closes by affirming that Christ's work for those who believe is able to justify from all the things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. What are these things? They are the sins that Christ's sacrifice takes away and allows to be forgiven. What did Paul mean that they could not be justified by the law of Moses? There are two points to take from this statement. The first is the point we've already made, in which Paul emphasizes over and again in his writings. The law, any law, demands perfection. Deuteronomy 27.26 and Leviticus 18.5 lay down this principle. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But the man who does them shall live by them. Yet, as Paul stated in Galatians 2.11, it is evident that no one is justified by the law. For, as he said in Romans 3.9, all are under sin. That is, all have sinned and are charged with sin. Therefore, Romans 3.20 says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. 
The reason this had special import to those living under the law of Moses, and the second point worth noting here, was that under the system of Moses itself, there was no sacrifice that could take away sin, according to Hebrews 10, 1-4. Thus, any sinner who remained under the system of Moses could only be condemned, and by extension, if a sinner who lived under the system of Moses was justified, it would be by going outside the system of Moses through faith to Christ. This was good news to the Jews and the Gentiles, but this message, which was not original to Paul, it has already been preached by Peter and before him by Jesus Christ himself, yet it was never stated so clearly and profoundly as when the Spirit, through Paul, began to articulate and elucidate its meaning and implications. And this begins a new stage in Jewish opposition to the Christian message, one that would even draw in some Jewish Christians. First, it was opposition to the resurrection, then to the idea of a crucified Messiah. But now, the unfolding of the message of Christ reveals the utter inability of man to justify himself, and thus he must depend on Christ alone. This point was profoundly made when it became evident that one could remain a Gentile, never becoming a keeper of the law of Moses at all, and yet be faithful to God through Christ. Yet that exposed a problem which Jesus had certainly seen during his ministry, but one that most of his disciples had failed to appreciate. Most of the Jews had, through pride, allowed the law of Moses to become, in their minds, an instrument of self-righteousness, or to put it another way, self-justification. The law, which Paul said in Galatians 3.24, was designed to prepare and to bring Israel to Christ that they might be justified by faith, had in fact become a barrier to their acceptance of the very idea. Of course, we learned in Peter's sermon in Acts 2 that the ministry of Jesus was going to bring a separation to Israel, those who believed from those who did not, those who were saved from those who were judged. And Paul continues with that same message, verses 40 through 41. Beware, therefore, that is, on the basis that Christ is the only hope for our justification before God, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. This is a citation of Habakkuk 1 and verse 5, in which the ancient prophet was told by God that he had planned to judge Israel through the Babylonians. Here, Paul appropriates this prophecy and applies it to the unbelieving Jews of his own day to announce the judgment God would bring against them by the Romans in AD 70. Christ had come, and with him hope, but to reject him was to embrace hopelessness and certain condemnation. Verses 42 through 43. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. I'm reading here from the New King James Version, and it sounds like all the Jews rejected the sermon and only the Gentiles wanted to hear more. There's actually an issue with the text here, and the New American Standard Version follows the better manuscripts, which convey a very different idea. It says, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, 
the people, this is a generic word which would include both Jews and Gentiles, kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation had broken up, that is, when the assembly ended and was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. This supports the New American Standard Version's reading. Who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. What did this mean? To continue in the grace of God. Well, it might be a theological statement, restating Paul's contrast between the sure failure of Jewish legalism and the necessity of justification by faith, or it might mean to continue having their favorable disposition toward God's message, which would in turn cause God to have a favorable disposition toward them. It is a striking thing that sometimes the most beautiful and hopeful aspects of the good news of Jesus Christ are the most despised and rejected of men. If we see ourselves as great and fine, justification by faith will be an obscene and troublesome concept to us. But if we will allow God's word to convict us that we are all under sin, this will be the best news we ever hear. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story. God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.